Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. The football, the football podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to the tenth episode. I can't believe I'm saying that. The tenth episode of Game of Thrones. I'm Jack McArdle and I'm joined this evening by Phil. How are you going, mate? Number ten. I'm excited. Doesn't feel like ten episodes already. It was very quick. I'm still having so much fun. So not to another ten, to another hundred, I would say. And in general, like all Liverpool supporters uh, at the moment, I feel very lucky. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Anyway, um, we're also joined by our Dutch football expert this evening, Gert Chan. Hi, Gert Chan. How are you? Hi, Jack. I'm Mel. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. I think we are going to discuss some really exciting topics, so I'm really delighted about that. I'm also lucky to be a fan of Ajax. Um, we are doing quite well this season as well. So, uh, yeah, that's also very positive. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to discuss some football with both of you. Indeed. Um, we're going to start off tonight by launching the Game of Thrones charity initiative. we got Phil here to tell us more about that. Phil, what is it and what can we do to help? Yes, mate. Yeah, as we do this podcast purely for fun and to inform and entertain you guys, we don't want any money involved. But we would like to introduce some charities close to our hearts. So if you do want to support us, please support them. And I will start this week with the first one. It's called Support Sean. It's for Liverpool supporter Sean Cox, who was attacked by cowards from the visiting supporters outside Anfield before the Champions League semi-final second leg in 2018. He was in a coma for weeks with severe brain and head injuries. Um, good news is that he started rehabilitation in September. He may never walk again and his speech remains very challenged, according to his wife. But there are some good signs. And But despite various charities and, and great support from, from Liverpool fans and people at the club, the medical bills won't stop coming in for years. So comedian John Bishop will host a show in Dublin next year. So if you want to support Sean, attend the show or make a donation on supportsean.com. I want to add something here. Man City players sang a chant mocking Liverpool's Ale 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 with a line saying crying in the stands and battered on the streets last year when they celebrated the Premier League title. I don't think a lot of City players knew what they were singing at the time. But it was definitely about hooliganism. No matter what Man City says, no matter which statement they will release. The only recent hooli story in relation to Liverpool was the attack on Sean. So to all City supporters who think that's funny and also their players, if not for titles, Jürgen and the boys will beat you lot in the next three years for Sean. Next time, we will talk about the Hillsborough Justice Campaign and the Hillsborough Family Support Group. Thank you very much. We will indeed. Moving on to our main topic for tonight, episode 10. So what better to talk about than famous number 10s and the number 10 position? We've had some iconic number 10s over the years. The shirt... 
and the position, players playing in that position. Gertrude, what exactly, just for the listeners that may not know, what exactly is the number 10 position? Could you explain that to us? Yeah, uh, the number 10 is often the best player on the pitch of the team. And the function of the number 10 is to score or to create uh, chances for his teammates. And a good number 10 has a great technique, is comfortable with the ball, uh, has the ability to dribble, uh, but also an impressive uh, passing capacity and also efficient to reach his teammates with his passing, but also to create spaces and to find spaces. So also what a good number 10 has is uh, very good positioning skills. And also good number 10s, they, they, are, they are basically the playmakers. So they are the person around which everything is centered and they are creating chances for other, for other players, uh, but also are at some points holding the ball for the whole team. So the other, so the other players uh, can come forward, find spaces in order to, for the, the number 10 to play the ball in and then have the um, uh, chance to score. I would also add that most number 10s are very good at set pieces and most really world-class number 10s take all of the set pieces for a team. For sure. You can't, um, you can't underestimate their dead ball ability. But Phil, would you say what we think, what we regard as the traditional number 10, kind of the Raquel Mays, the Imars, the Ozils, the, the Maradonas, it seems to me like the, the, the game is getting so much quicker nowadays and it's harder to find a place for a player like that. A player with great technical ability but not necessarily the most athletic players in the world. What, what do you think about that? Would you say the game is has outgrown the number 10 now? I don't think so and it just depends on the players you have and the football you want to play. And my best example actually is, is Liverpool from the past years. Nowadays, most teams, or especially in the last 10 years, switch to 4-3-3 with more of three really central midfielders rather than number 10s or, or classical playmakers. At Liverpool, we had Felipe Coutinho and Jurgen Klopp was able to implement him in his midfield as a more offensive option but he was still doing his defensive duties. It was very clear, actually, during the match against Dortmund in the Europa League. Then we lost Coutinho, obviously, to Barcelona. He continued by playing with um, more like really three central midfielders most of the time, Wijnaldum, Henderson, Milner, um, Fabinho now, and so on. And then... He really, really, really made Roberto Firmino, his central striker, actually his playmaker. He even evolved the false nine. And it's a whole new way of being a playmaker and the central striker as well. And he, I think he does it like no one else. And this shows you how how different the role of the number 10 can be nowadays. And if you look at at other leagues like like Italy, for example, there we have way more classical number tens because some teams are still playing in three five two formations and stuff like that. So it's a variety now rather than just a very typical role it was 
like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, um, I also would like to add to this. Uh, like if you look at Ajax, the classical number 10 in the team is uh, Hakim Sier. But Hakim Sier, because he loses quite a lot of position, he's now positioned at the wing at Ajax, at the right wing. And that's also because it's too risky to put him in the middle uh, because uh, of, of the fear that he will lose position. And therefore, he plays, uh, according to the sheet, the team sheet, on the right uh, wing side, but at the same time he drifts to the middle and then also he can uh, change positions uh, with the number 10 or with uh, the other winger and therefore it's also much more difficult to defend. So also, uh, yeah, this versatility of the number 10 makes it much more difficult to uh, defend against, especially because it uh, encourages teammates to switch positions. Definitely. I think you can see that with Manchester City as well. Under Roberto Mancini and Manuel Pellegrini, David Silva was much more of an orthodox number 10, um, someone that liked to play between the lines, and he still does now. But you often see him starting in more of a central midfield role, a bit further back, because... City, like you said, Gertrude with Ajax, like the fluidity up front and it enables players like Sterling and Bernardo Silva to drift, Aguero to drift back into the space like uh, Firmino does for Liverpool to get the ball. And it just allows for a, maybe a bit more flexibility. But I'd like to, Phil, you were talking about Firmino, um, Klopp turning Firmino into a playmaker. I'm reading a book at the moment, this is a bit of advertising for the author, called Inverting the Pyramid by an author called Jonathan Wilson. Anybody who is remotely a fan of the history of football or football tactics should really check out this book. Um, there's actually a chapter on the great Hungarian team of the 50s and the role of a player called Nandor. I can't pronounce his surname, so excuse any excuse me any Hungarians listening. Nandor Heidekaguti, who was arguably the first number 10, the first deep lying forward, and he was instrumental, perhaps even more than Pushkas. Um, in the great hungry teams of the 1950s. Um, if you haven't read it, Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson is a really good book on football tactics um, and really good to understand where today's football has come from and kind of what happened in the past. So yeah, definitely read that book. And jo Mr. Jonathan Wilson, I expect some royalties from your book sales. <sighs> it's, it's, it's such a... It's such an iconic number, Phil, the number 10. Um, but we've seen down the years that number 10s haven't always been attacking midfielders. There's definitely been some comical cases of uh, other players wearing number 10, right? Yes. I mean, let's not waste too much time talking about examples like William Gallas or Laurent Koscielny or maybe even goalkeepers wearing the number 10, as Davide has showed us. I, I forgot his name. Sorry, mate, but you can remind us on, on social media, maybe with a picture even. But there are also like number 10s who are orthodox number 10s and, and um, false 9s who are like not the obvious choice or the players you think of when you, when you think of great number 10s. You know, it's always the same names that come to mind. I think I don't have to, to, to call them out now because we will do a whole top 11 later. But yeah, those, let's say, alternative number 10s, you know, who are, who are famous, like everyone has a cult hero number 10. They may not won all the shiny medals, but they gave us moments we never forgot. 
I'm talking about the nutters, the inconsistent, brilliant playmakers and the ones who played for the so-called smaller clubs, maybe. Players like everybody in England knows him, Matt Letizier, um, more on him later in the top 11. Or the Romanian... Can I just say, yeah. can I just say on Matt Letizier, um, he was listed in Xavi, Xavi, Barcelona Xavi, one of the greatest playmakers of all time, in his top five players of all time. If you don't know Matt Letizier, I recommend you get onto YouTube because he was a truly underrated and fantastic football player. Sorry, Phil, back to you. Absolutely. No, I, I was just getting back um, to, to someone like the Romanian uh, Jorge Hachi who mesmerized everyone playing for Barca, Gala, or his national team. He's also a huge, huge legend in Turkey, despite being, of course, the best player his country has ever had. And he even stayed with Brescia after they got relegated to Serie B in 93. Or a player like Gaitska Mendieta might not be on the top 10 lists of number 10s, but he was captain of that legendary Valencia uh, team around the turn of the century. And my favorite, let's say, alternative number 10 is actually a number 7 because he wore the number 7 on his shirt. He's a hero of my childhood. It's uh, Mehmet Scholl. He was with Bayern most of his career. He started at Karlsruhe. He was the only baller in a time when Germany had no ballers. <laughs> he, was, he was the street footballer. Everybody enjoyed him playing and he's one of the few Bayern Munich players who is not universally hated in Germany because of playing for them. Because he's also a very, very bright character. He's a cheeky guy. He's very similar actually to someone like Robbie Fowler. Never, never thought of that comparison before today actually. Not, not in playing football but personality wise. Scholl was great to me. He was the greatest that never really performed at a World Cup because he was injured too much, but he won Euro 96 and is an absolute cult hero at Bayern Munich. He's a great tactical analyst now on, on TV. He's a pundit and I enjoy listening to him talking about tactics and on his opinions because he was one who never someone was who was not hiding his opinion who was always very straight he was the, actually the very first pop star of footballers in germany um, who was on the cover of bravo it was kind of a teen the biggest teen magazine in germany he had some problems dealing with it and then became very quiet towards the media but um, there's a very good documentary about him it's called auswärtsspiel which means away game. Watch it, Mamichol, best alternative number 10 I've ever seen. I just finally, on this topic, I'd just like to add, uh, I think a cult hero for many. He did, never played for a big club, but he excelled with his national team, of course, winning, uh, I think it was the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Played for Frankfurt, PSG, Bolton. Uh, JJ Okocha was possibly the most fun one of the most fun players to watch ever um he's a number 10 but it's just it was almost a psg were lucky because they had a cocha and then not long afterwards they had ronaldinho who we'll talk about later just these players who they just seem to play football from the soul number 10s are always very artistic always very 
they're allowed to because they they have more they had more freedom back in the days of the traditional number 10 to express themselves and Akocha was like as you said with Mehmet Scholfil a player that looked like he was playing with his mates on the street it still had this kind of the reason we love number 10s is because it makes us think back to a time when we were maybe a child when they're just carefree you know they just don't seem to have any worries because they have all the creative freedom they need to show their skills yeah and don't don't remind Oli Khan about JJ Okocha <laughs> and if you don't know why go to YouTube and watch that goal <laughs> Gertchan anything to add on number 10 number 10s are just art in my opinion I think they they, they give something additional um, something special to football other other players can't give and and they make the, the game kind of a magical experience in my opinion you just summed it up in the most lovely way possible for sure thank you <laughs> moving along now over the next few weeks we're going to talk about the leagues in different countries which maybe aren't the top leagues we're going to talk about um, division two in all the major European um, all the major European footballing countries and because we have our Dutch football expert Gertram with us today we're going to start off talking about the uh, second division in Holland which is aptly named the Erste Divisie for some reason which Gertram will surely explain to us now yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a big transition going from number 10s to the Dutch uh, second division, especially if you imagine the name, because the the, the name is even worse than <laughs> you thought, because uh, the Dutch second division uh, is called the Eerste Divisie Keukenkampioenschap Divisie, which means the first division Kitchen Championship division <laughs> which is like the worst name ever <laughs> kitchen it's, it's big, yes it sounds like yeah. are you cooking in the second division or are you playing football <laughs> yeah no indeed i i completely agree with you because the the division has is sponsored by uh, a company called a uh, kitchen uh, champion and therefore they thought it was a brilliant idea to call the whole division to their <laughs> name and uh yeah uh that that um created this horrible name which makes it really difficult to <laughs> to talk seriously about this division <laughs> sorry and I, I i am really sorry for the team who wins this year who wins the the prize for the kitchen championship division i mean <laughs> it doesn't make any sense uh. if i could just interrupt you a second gertrude i think every time a player in the second division scores a goal they should make like a the microwave sound like a <laughs> 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 That is brilliant. I totally agree with you. <laughs> But yeah, that, that that's just an example how yeah, capitalism fucks up football. I mean, to to butcher a name of a division like this. I mean, it's it's beyond belief to be honest. But at least this time it's funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's some humor. I was really surprised when they um, revealed the name uh, at the end of last season. <laughs> And I'm still not over it. Um, but in terms of the league itself, we're talking about football. Th this year, it seems to be the second division seems to be quite close. I think it's just eight points between uh, first and eighth. It's a really close um, competitive league. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is. And and there are actually uh, around six teams. And then you also have like the um, second squads of Ajax and PSV. 
uh, which are really close to each other. And also in terms of like uh, their fans, the number of fans, the average n number of supporters who attend uh, games. These are um, NSA, NEC, Cambu, uh, de Graafschap, Rode SC and Excelsior. And they have been voting between uh, the first and second division for a very long while. So uh, they, they are kind of like stuck in between the first and second division and they are promoting or relegating like every other year. And that makes it really like close in terms of like the competition between these, uh, these traditional teams. And then the other 14 teams, they are much smaller in comparison with these teams. Uh, they have much uh, smaller fan bases, uh, their attendance at the games is much lower and also of course that has uh, consequences for their budget. I, I just have a question Gertrude, what happens, let's say Ajax, uh, the second Ajax team, the Ajax reserves get promoted to the Eredivisie, what happens then, do Ajax seconds play against Ajax firsts, so how does that work? Uh, actually, this this situation already uh, happened uh, because uh, two years ago, Ajax, uh, the second team of Ajax, managed to win uh, the first division. But uh, obviously, they were not promoted because uh, that that would uh, no, not possible. Uh, lead to forgery. Uh, because the Ajax first team would take uh, play against the second team, and that would be unfair for all the other teams. So therefore, uh, the first team, uh, the second teams uh, of Ajax, PSV, uh, Utrecht, and AZ will play in the first division. They can't promote. I think it was the same scenario some years ago in the second division of Spain. I think we had in the second division we had Barcelona B, we had uh, Real Madrid Castilla. And I think we had a third club. I don't know which one it was having his B team in, in, in the Spanish second division. So, yeah, I think this, it's stupid. I think it's stupid. I think if it's like a fourth division or third division, we might or we can talk about it if it's not professional or semi-professional football. But I think it should be like it is in England. I think it's absolutely stupid to play your B team in the second highest division of the country. It's it's absolutely unfair to smaller cities, to smaller clubs and and it makes it makes even more smaller clubs break apart and and I think it's it's not good for football, it's just good for top clubs. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's also the the discussion we have in in the Netherlands. Uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, smaller teams are really not happy with the second uh, teams of Ajax, AZ, FC Utrecht, and PSV uh, playing in the uh, second uh, division. Uh, the second teams they only have been introduced in in the season 2013-2014. Uh, there are some rules they have to adhere to. So, in the sense that uh, the, the squads of these uh, B teams, they can only have players younger than 23. And uh, when the, the players are between 18 to 20 years old, they are only allowed to play 18 matches uh, for the first squad. And after they have reached uh, 18 matches for the first squad in a season, they can't play anymore for the B team. And also, they uh, when they are older, when they are between uh, 20 and 23, they can only play seven matches with the first team. And after that, they are disqualified from playing with the, with the B team. Uh, but the reason uh, these B teams have been introduced to the second division is especially it has been seen as beneficial for the development of football in the Netherlands. 
and 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 then also for the big teams to compete with uh, the bigger clubs in Europe. Uh, so the the reason why the Dutch Football League introduced this, the B teams in the second division is that they um, face uh, that that young players uh, face more physical resistance because they have to play against older and experienced players. Uh, there's also more pressure because they will be attending the most talented players of uh, Ajax, of AZ, of FC Utrecht, of uh, PSV. They will play in bigger stadiums. Uh, there's more at stake, so that will also help them to um, perform under pressure. And also, uh, it has been argued that uh, the presence of these B teams in the second division has led to higher attendance level, especially when uh, the second team of Ajax uh, is is visiting one of the uh, teams in the second division that often leads to higher attendance and also it is more popular on the television. But obviously there are a lot of downsides uh, of these B teams playing in, in the second division. Um, so uh, there's first of all the the question of uh, forgery in terms of like, uh, it's, it's kind of unfair because these B teams constantly switch in terms of their uh, formations of the players that are being selected also because the first squad often needs uh, players and therefore one team uh, can play against a completely other B team than the other team in the first division and that leads to kind of unfair competition for a lot of teams. And also uh, these uh, B teams often when they play at home there's a very low attendance so not a lot of uh, supporters are even attending uh, the home games of Ajax uh, B team when they're playing at home. So that also has like a negative effect on the whole appearance of the um, second division in the Netherlands. I can definitely see... Sorry, so- so- sorry for interrupting, mate. But Gertrude, I would like to know what you personally think about having those B teams in the second division. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit biased. Everybody knows I'm an Ajax supporter. And for Ajax, it has been really beneficial because for players to develop, uh, they they play against teams uh, which are much more older, much more experienced. And therefore, it's really good for, for young players to develop themselves and to be much more experienced when they come to the first squad. So, for example, for the development of players like uh, Matthijs Licht, Frankie de Jong, it has been really beneficial for them playing with the B team. And also now new players will come along like Noah Long, like uh, Schuurs, uh, who play in the B team and who are preparing themselves while playing in f- in the second division, uh, really for, for uh, playing with Ajax at first division and European level. And I think thinking about the development of those players who will also earn points for the Netherlands in the European leagues and also given the level of the Netherlands at a European level, I think it's important to have these second squads, um, second teams in the second division. And I think it's good for Dutch football in general. But at the same time, there there is, of course, a concern that it uh, increases the gaps between uh, the top teams and the smaller teams in, in the uh, second division, but also uh, in the first division. And that's already visible because Ajax and PSV are really dominating in uh, in the Dutch uh, first division and especially Ajax nowadays. I was gonna I was gonna say that, that, that there are definitely two sides to this argument. And I can understand both. From the perspective of a top team, it's a good place, as you said, to blood your young players and to give them experience, and that will surely have a knock-on effect for the for the national team. It will be beneficial for the players to go out and get experience at a slightly lower level, but where they're playing 
all the time. But um, I know the FA a couple of years ago were talking about introducing B teams, and there I think in this football in British football culture, I think there would definitely be a lot of resistance because the support for the lower league clubs um, in England is very high. Championship is a very popular league, League One and League Two. People support their local clubs. I, I don't think the local clubs would would take too kindly to this if you if you want this kind of they would see it as a kind of invasion of the bigger clubs like trying to take like they're very protective of what they see as authentic football and authentic football for them is like championship league one league two and sometimes lower and the premier league coming to take that away from them would take away i think maybe part of their their identity you know i can understand from the top team's perspective how this could be beneficial and interesting and definitely from the national team point of view getting more players ready for 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 top level competition but i i don't know i i personally wouldn't be in favor of it i think if you want to give your players experience in this country just loan them to a championship or a league one club Um, there's no need to take your whole team into into a different level of football because as as I said the fans the fans definitely won't like it. Any final thoughts, Phil? Yes. Um, may may I, may I respond to this as well? Because I think like sure sure go ahead go ahead mate. Yeah, because uh, the the fan bases in the Dutch uh, second division are not comparable anywhere to the Championship in 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 the UK even uh, the first division in. in uh, in the UK, I mean, we're talking about regular attendance of like 4,000 people if you're talking about the lower tier teams. I think even in the Conference League, you might have more supporters coming to a match. So therefore, I mean, uh, in terms of popularity, the second division is is just uh, highly uh, unpopular in the Netherlands. There, there's just like not enough uh, public support for it. So therefore, I think it's permissible to have these, uh, these second uh, teams in, in this league. Phil, you, what were you going to say? Yes. Just imagine, just like you, Jack, actually, being a supporter of a club of the third or fourth division and they introduce B teams to the second division. It makes it even harder to compete to, to go there and it makes it even harder if you are there in the second division. It makes it even harder to stay in there or to climb up the ladder so i'm totally against it just like jack i can see how it's beneficial to top clubs but i think nowadays football is designed to suit top clubs and it generates a gap that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you can clearly see it in the premier league with the top six you can see it in Germany with the top two, maybe even the top three if Leipzig can stay there. I hope not. And you can see it in Italy with Juventus. They're so far ahead. And of course, Spain. I think we don't have to talk about Spain. So don't do it. Um, I can get that maybe a smaller country like the Netherlands do it because they can benefit a lot from it. But what I can say about the Netherlands and about the second division and B teams, and this this will be my final word, your country is, I think, five, six, seven, eight times smaller than Germany and has produced more world-class players in the last 30 years than Germany did. 
and you didn't need B teams for that. So I think personally, like the incentive for a player playing for the B team is to aspire to make the A team, right? And if I don't know, maybe with the B team that it would become maybe for the good players, like you look at Barcelona, Barcelona B, and the players that started in Barcelona B, the likes of Messi and Xavi. Eventually, it beca- they get so good that they, they can't not play in the first team anyway. So I think it's it kind of destroys the incentive maybe for players. If they're already playing at the second highest level, they might get too comfortable there and not push themselves to go to the very highest level. I, I'm not sure. But it I don't know. I, I, I would go with Phil. I, I can see both sides, but I think it wouldn't be... It's certainly in this country, I don't think it would be something that people would, would like... Um, as I said, the the identity around local football and people really carry their clubs and their hearts and the community. And I think more invasion, more meddling from uh, from the top from the top Premier League clubs, um, it would definitely wouldn't go down well. Moving along now, um, we do have two questions from our audience this week. Two questions from Instagram. Phil, you can answer this one. What do you think of Arsenal this year? Will they lift a trophy? <laughs> That's from Caroline on Instagram, by the way. Oh, well, um, I think they have to open the gates to hell for that. <laughs> Not really. With Liverpool and City being so dominant and still being in the Cups and Liverpool actually playing Arsenal next in the League Cup and... Chelsea being on the absolutely right path under Frank Lampard, very impressive with this young squad. And I think they should have they should have had a transfer ban way before because they might have discovered how many very good young players they have. And with Leicester being good and Man United always up for for a cup win, I can't see Arsenal win any trophies. They're too inconsistent. Um, I think they should focus on finishing not only in the top six, but maybe. And this could be very hefty soon because I think Arsenal are playing Leicester very soon. And if they lose that much, the gap will be, I think, nine points or even more. So they should really focus on um, finishing as high as possible in the league because at the moment, and I'm not the only one, I mean, they give him time, but I, at the moment, I, I can't really see Unai Emery making them a top team again. I heard people crying out for Mourinho already. I think that would be the absolutely wrong move. Arsenal needs another manager with a long-term philosophy just like Jurgen Klopp, we, we talked about this before we recorded this episode. I'm so glad to see a manager at my club who has a clear philosophy. And I said four years ago that we would be at this point now because I knew he would make it happen because he knows what he's doing. And I really can't see it with Unai Emery. So, no. No to that one. Sorry, mate. <laughs> okay, thank you, Phil. Um, get chat. Mourinho at Arsenal. <laughs> I mean, I'm really sure. Why would you hope that as an Arsenal fan? It's a complete misfit with the whole club, with the whole identity. No, I just read it today. I, I, it's not from the Arsenal supporters. I just read it today. It's just, you know, stupid gossip. Okay. And especially, especially what Mourinho has said in 
press conferences with previous clubs about Arsenal, about them always crying, about them being specialists in failure. I think that appointment will quite possibly be the most controversial managerial appointment of the century. Um, I, I don't. And I can't wait for Arsene Wenger to comment on this. <laughs> I can't wait for Arsenal fan TV if he does get appointed. <laughs> 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 yeah ask him about the last oh yeah because i was talking shit, actually we just played arsenal in the league cup and it was a ridiculously good game offensively and very bad game defensively because we both played our so-called b teams but not in the second division it was a crazy match yeah arsenal are already out of the league cup so one competition less they only have two left FA Cup and Europa League yeah three three competitions left so yeah Arsenal <laughs> what can you say it's funny we, we have a second question here um, what do you guys think about the huge scores we've seen this year we've seen Tottenham 2 Bayern 7 Atalanta 7 Udinese 1 uh, Southampton nil, Leicester 9 for example what is that telling us Gertjan? I think uh, it's telling us that attacking uh, football has become more popular. I think also because of promotion of the likes as uh, Guardiola. Perhaps um, I don't want to be part too participant, uh, partisan, but uh, that Ajax's uh, success in the Champions League also has uh, played a positive factor in this. And I think also the high pressing on, on the field, which is like common now everywhere, I think that also uh, leads to these very high scores. Yeah, and it definitely showed us that Tottenham are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you say Tottenham was Look at Southampton. I mean, does it show that the attacking has gotten better? or that But mate, Southampton didn't play a Champions League final some month ago. That's very true. That's the difference. And they don't have the England captain, you know, and blah, 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 and so on. So, yeah. Is it also not showing us that defences have gotten worse and maybe the gap between... The bigger teams and the smaller teams, as we said, is getting bigger again. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that development uh, in, in some countries. But yeah, in the Champions League, I mean, there, there wasn't too much between Bayern Munich and, and Tottenham Hotspur last year. So I think it's maybe also because of the high number of games the, the footballers are playing. Uh, perhaps it's, it's more difficult these, these days to be more consistent as a team. For sure. Moving along now, um, we talked about number 10s earlier, and now we are going to do our top 11 number 10s, in no particular order, of all time. Phil, Gertrude, are you ready for this? Yeah, very excited. Let's go, mate. Okay. First on our list, Diego Maradona. Phil, that one's for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Diego Maradona. Um, my absolute favorite, and to me, the best playmaker and number 10 of all time, at least in the 20th century. El Diego, he made his name with just 15 at uh, Argentino uh, Juniors. I think that might be the right pronunciation. I have absolutely no idea. And he was later worshipped at Boca, actually the whole of Argentina, Napoli, and my room when I was watching his tapes as a kid. You could say all kinds of things about Diego, but... Just watched the documentary movie, Diego Maradona, which was in theaters this year. That's all you need to do. And you just have to add one thing about Maradona is that a couple of weeks ago um, in an Argentinian league game, he's now manager of Gimnasia La Plata. 
in Argentina. And for his birthday, they let him sit on a throne on the touchline, just to go to show how much he is adored in Argentina. He has whole cathedrals in Naples. So, yeah, he he's he's the one. Um, Gertchan, Yari Lipmanen, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, Yari Lipmanen. I'm not sure, I mean, uh, in comparison with the other players uh, we selected, I'm not sure, like, if Lipmanen really fits into it, but I was really pressing for Lipmanen because he's my favorite Ajax player ever. Uh, I saw him playing when I was young. He was my favorite player of the team. He's still, actually, I mean, my, my all, all-time legend, I mean, apart from Cruyff, but we will uh, talk about him later. But uh, yeah, he uh, had a great vision. He, he was very good with positioning. He was creating space for himself, but also for, for other players. He was really fundamental in uh, the team of Louis van Gaal in 1995-1996. He was kind of the missing link when he came to Ajax in 1993. The, the team started to develop and started to play better and especially reached the high level they reached under, under Louis van Gaal. And uh, yeah, he had a great composure um, as well. Uh, he was he was one of the top scoring uh, players at Ajax together uh, also with, with Kluivert. And apart from it, he's a very friendly, friendly person. I'm, uh, I saw him once at a training. Uh, we went there with the whole family in order to see like the big stars of Ajax play. And uh, yeah, Liebman was there as well. And he really took the time uh, always for all the supporters. And I think he's still like the most popular player of Ajax uh, after Cruyff uh, ever. And also after Jari Lipman uh, played for Ajax, uh, Jari has become a very popular boy's name in the Netherlands. And very popular uh, on Merseyside as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he played also for, for big teams like uh, Barcelona uh, and Liverpool apart from Ajax. Moving along now, my turn. I'm going to go with Ronaldinho, first of all. Um, what could be said about Ronaldinho? Um, he, first of all, he wasn't at the top for long enough. If he looked after himself better, we could be talking about him in the same, in the same breath as we talk about the all-time greats like Krauf and uh, Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Maradona, although Maradona kind of went the same way. But Ronaldinho, um, for three years in the year, in the 2000s, was just out of this world. Like a, a, a playmaker, extraordinary passing, extraordinary shooting, extraordinary set pieces. But it's just the way, as we talked about earlier, the way he played with a smile on his face, the way it just looked effortless to him. His years at Barcelona from 2004 to 2006, how many players get a standing ovation at their rival club stadium? Um, that tells you everything you need to know about him. And the players who who are stars today the young players the likes of Jadon Sancho grew up watching Ronaldinho watching him on YouTube and every kid wanted to do what he did but we couldn't because he was just unique Phil Matt Letizier yes Matt Letizier um, I just wanted to add um, to Ronaldinho I always said that or I always thought that Messi plays like a god Ronaldo like a machine but Ronaldinho was pure magic and fun. That was what, what he was to me and I think most of the uh, supporters around the world because as we all know, he only had a handful of good years, actually. He liked life more than professionalism, I guess. Yeah, Matt Letizier, the Saints boy, he played his whole career for Southampton. Le God, as he was nicknamed by the St. Mary's faithful, made 444 appearances, scoring 162 goals as a midfielder. He's up there with Gerrard and Lampard 
And believe you me, not only his wonder goal against Newcastle was great, he scored so many brilliant goals galore. Unfortunately, he never had a good international career due to staying loyal to Southampton and, of course, managers like Glenn Hoddle. But still, one of the biggest legends of the Premier League era and I can only recommend everyone to go to YouTube and watch a compilation of Matt Letizier. Indeed, one of the most skillful English players of all time and also named in Javi, um, Xavi Hernandez um, top five kind of idols um, when he was still at Barcelona. So that just goes to show how good he was. Moving along, um, Gertrude Laudrup. I'm not sure if you mean Brian or Michael Laudrup, but I'll let you answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they, they actually both played for Ajax, but uh, yeah, as everybody would assume, of course, it's Michael. He was the, the key playmaker of Johan Cruyff's uh, Barcelona dream team. Uh, the greatest Danish player ever, one of the best foreigners uh, stars to ever play in Spain. And also he played for both uh, Barcelona and, and Real Madrid and, and both uh, play, playing for both of them in an, in an amazing style. Raul, Andres Iniesta and Pep Guardiola have all described him as the best player of all times. That can be said because of his pace, uh, of his elegance, especially, I mean, that, that's that's what typifies Laudrup the most, in my opinion, is his elegance on the ball. The easy way he could dribble with the ball, uh, his versatility, his pace, uh, and that made him also a very beautiful player to watch. It was like kind of like an artwork, how he played a very important role in the attack of uh, Barcelona, uh, Real Madrid, later also at Ajax. Uh, he was also very all around. So um, apart from his uh, dribbling skills, he was also a very good passer, but also he had a technique that was comparable to that of Bergkamp. Um, he had an incredible balance and that also strikes again with the, with the elegance he has on the ball and also his uh, vision playing the ball uh, wherever he wanted to play uh, the ball uh, at uh, and also reaching players who were um, making space for themselves. He was just like a, a driving engine for, uh, for both uh, Real Madrid as well as, as Barcelona and crucial to the success of both teams when he was playing there. I, I've just realised in this top 11 we haven't put Dennis Burkamp, and I think if anybody's listening to this they might get, especially Arsenal fans, they might get a bit angry about this. No, I think, I think he's not in there in our top 11 and I think this is just not a good episode for Arsenal fans. So <laughs> We're sorry Arsenal okay. fans. Arsenal Fan TV, if you're watching, we're sorry. <laughs> I was expecting to talk about Bergkamp, but <laughs> something okay. went wrong in the communication. But I'm happy. I mean, if, if Arsenal uh, fans want me to play about, uh, to, to talk about Bergkamp, I would be more than happy to because there's Arsenal so much fans, to say. This is all Gertrand's fault, so send him lots of DM, hateful DMs on Twitter. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, Phil, Roberto Baggio. Oh, yeah. Davide. If you are listening, this one's for you. Yeah, Roberto Baggio, the fantasista. Maybe the only player who played for Italy's big three, Inter, Milan and Juve, and gets clapped by all of them. A pillow. <coughs> I don't think he gets clapped as much and like Baggio, and I don't think he's as loved as Roberto Baggio is actually in the whole of Italy. He's... He was just fantastic. I mean, if you just 
watch his highlights on YouTube and there are a lot of them. He was just mesmerizing. I, I loved him. I only saw his later years in his uh, career, but he was absolutely fantastic. And he's a Ballon d'Or winner of 93. I think he gets remembered mostly for his infamous penalty miss in the World Cup final in 94 in the USA against Brazil. But I think that does not do him justice. He was one of the greatest and he's also a great person as well. So, Roberto Baggio, mi amore. Oh, so romantic. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Zico now. Um, Zico is obviously a player that was a bit before my time, but I've heard so many stories about him, and this, is, this one's for you, Eric, if you're listening. All the historians, all the videos, all the documentaries say that the 1982 Brazil team was the best team that never won the World Cup, apart from maybe the Netherlands in 74. Painful. <laughs> Sorry, Gachan. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Brazil in 82, they, they had a fantastic team full of, uh, full of quality players, but Zico was a standout. I mean, as a number 10, his vision, his, his passing ability, his free kicks. We talk about free kick uh, specialists like Juninho and others, but... <sighs> What a player. What an absolutely phenomenal player. A Flamengo legend. And is also very well loved in Japan now after spending some time at Kashima Antlers, where he is still, I think, kind of a technical director there. So, um, yeah, thoroughly deserves his place in this list. Phenomenal footballer. Okay, Gertchan, please try and keep this short. Johan Cruyff, or Krauf. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is almost impossible to, to, to make it short. I mean... A legend as a player. I mean, watching Cruyff, uh, he, he played before my time, obviously. But I mean, looking back at the videos of him, it's it's like watching art, uh, similar to Zidane, Laudrup or Maradona. The goals he made, uh, his vision, the passes uh, he made, um, the elegant way he moved with the ball over the pitch, uh, the spaces he found uh, between midfield defense, behind the defense, his creativity. I think, uh, in my, my opinion, Cruyff changed the game forever. He had a major influence on every team he played at or he, he managed. He had an enormous uh, personality, uh, which was probably bigger than football. Uh, he also claimed in the Netherlands often to, to know more than just about football. He even had like his own solutions of to the traffic jams in the Netherlands, which was uh, kind of interesting. But I mean, as as uh, as uh, a manager and as a player, he saw things other people didn't see, and that's also how he changed football. Also by implementing a uh, total football, but also having an influence on Ajax and the revolution that uh, took place uh, six years ago. And his still his legacy is still everywhere to be found. Uh, at Ajax, he was also fundamental to the success of last year in Champions League, but also uh, to the successes of uh, Barcelona. And yeah, may he rest in peace and. I want to thank him for bringing so much joy to the game. Indeed, thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to go with Juan Roman Raquelme now, who is quite possibly my favourite player of all time, with another person in this list, which I'll talk about in a second. Raquelme. So, mate, so, mate. Yeah. You keep it short now, yeah? Okay. Because we all know how much you love Juan Roman Raquelme. Yes. Well, Raquelme is a player, he didn't particularly do well in Europe. Um, I mean, he, he was okay at Villarreal, didn't particularly shine at Barcelona, but it, it will be 
for the legendary status he has at Boca Juniors that he's in this list. A phenomenal number 10. And he reminds me of myself in that I like to play number 10 when I play football because I'm a good passer of the ball, but I'm also very slow. And I can definitely see myself in one Roman Riquelme. Um, very humble, mate. Very humble. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, I haven't succeeded in Europe either. So um, <laughs> he's a phenomenal player. Free kick taker, through balls dictating the play spatial awareness just absolutely brilliant um, any Boca fans who remember the Libertadores success of the early 2000s and he came back and he played the seven final years of his career at Boca um, and then one season at Argentinos Juniors but just a phenomenal player Wam Ram and Appreciation Society I am the fucking president Moving along, um, Zinedine Zidane, who is my other favourite player of all time. Love letters all along. Love Lo- letters all <laughs> along in this episode. It's all about the love. <laughs> Zizou, um, just t- to come out of retirement and dominate a World Cup, which he then made a big mistake in the final. 2006, that was just mesmerising. How he played against Brazil, how he carried the French team to the final. The elegance of the player, like this ball control and his 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 elegance and his his skills and he could just do anything with either foot and you look at the the quotes and the players he's played with like I think it was uh, Makalele who said if I was in the sh- I'd just give the ball to Zizou and that says everything he is arguably for me he's probably still the greatest player ever and I know that will be controversial, but he is he, Zizou is just a, a footballing god for sure. We don't have many left now on the list. Lionel Messi I'm going to take as well. Arguably another one of the greatest players of all time. Just an insane goal-scoring record. But he's just a complete footballer. Number 10, false nine. Right winger, left winger, left foot, right foot. Best of his generation, I think. I don't think we can argue about that. Perhaps just a little bit lacking for the national team. But still one of the all-time greats, Lionel Messi. Am I missing anybody from the list? I think that was our top 11. Well, I just want to add to Messi because I think it's very good that he's the last one on the list. I feel very privileged that I was able, or am still able, to see Lionel Messi play during my lifetime. I think he's the best I have seen in my lifetime. For everyone... If you, if you can't really understand the brilliance of Lionel Messi, maybe because you like Ronaldo or maybe because you're a Real Madrid supporter or maybe, I don't know. If you don't know how brilliant he is, go to YouTube. There's a video called Lionel Messi, The Goat, The Movie. It got 9 million hits, I think, in two months. 3 million in a couple of days just watch it it's worth it yeah Messi's just a phenomenal player that's all we've got time for this week um, just previewing next week now we shall be talking about the emergence of certain teams in the Portuguese Primeira Liga we'll be uh, we'll have Davide with us to talk about Serie B and we shall be talking about the big game of the weekend which will surely be entertaining for everybody but Manchester United fans who have to watch their two least favourite teams fight it out for the title um, Liverpool against Man City Phil one word your feelings for the game buzzing 
it's going to be for the neutral and I'm a neutral because I hate both teams equally um, it's going to be a very entertaining game and we shall talk about that next week it was a pleasure to be on Game of Thrones with you tonight um, sharing our love for number 10s um, thank you Phil for joining us yeah cheers mate the 10th one was a lot of fun great to have Gertrude back so yeah looking forward to, to the weekend Thank you, uh, thank you for joining us, Gertrude, and all your insight on Dutch football. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was my pleasure to be there. Great. Um, we'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow us on all our social media channels, and we shall see you next week. Goodbye from the Game of Thrones team. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. The football, the football podcast. podcast.